Thank you for tuning in to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. You're about to hear a live sermon, which was recorded at our 11 a.m. contemporary service. We are thrilled to share it with you. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Everyone uh, turn their clocks ahead, I guess, so that they would get here in time. You're fortunate you didn't have to be here for the 815 service. (laughs) There were a few of us that were, but it's good to have you here and good to see you. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to hear Harvey Cox Harvey Cox is the Professor Emeritus of Divinity at Harvard Divinity School. When I heard him, he was the Dean of the School of Theology at Harvard, and he's a gifted speaker and author of several bestsellers. You may have heard of some of them, The Secular City, The Future of Faith, and one of my favorites, How to Read the Bible. Harvey Cox is thought by many to be on the extreme progressive, some would say liberal, cutting a edge of theological and sociological trends in religion. So it was somewhat of a surprise when he said that the most important and formational theological face thesis in his life were the words of the old gospel hymn, Just As I Am. Now, some of you uh, that are younger might not even remember that hymn, but it was often used to call worshipers to come down front in some conservative and evangelical worship services. And Cox explained it like this. He said, though the words may sound lachrymose to many, for me, they convey a sense of comfort and assurance. Was I really forgiven and accessible to God just as I am? Was it really true that I needed no other improvements, no alterations, that I could enter the presence of the Most High, the terrifying mysterium tremendum, as I later learned to say, just as I am? For if true, that was the very best news of all to an adolescent who was always being reminded or so it seemed, of my shortcomings and defects. And while both my parents seemed to love me no matter what, like all kids, I sensed that behind their expression of affection, there were a lot of hopes and expectations that I was not sure I could live up to. But if God forgave and accepted me just as I am, flaws and all, that was truly good news. The truth is that on virtually every page of both the Old and the New Testament, that's exactly the amazing and radical announcement that God, the creator of all that is, the mysterious life beyond all life, the the one whose name is not even to be said out loud, that very one desires nothing more of us than to accept that we are accepted. Wants nothing more of us than we live into that reality, into that understanding. 
This morning's scripture lesson is from the ninth chapter of Matthew's gospel, verses two through eight. It follows Jesus' sermon on the mount. We've been looking at that in our sermons and in our studies uh, for the last seven weeks. In Matthew's gospel, it, it follows chapter eight. Some of you know that chapter eight is simply full of healing stories. Healing story after healing story after healing story, much to the adoration of ever-increasing crowds. So I invite you to follow along as we listen for the Word of God. And just then, some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven.'" Then some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. And he stood up and went to his home. And when the crowds saw it, they were filled with awe and they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And may your words be more than only words to us and May we be more than only hearers, but doers. In Christ's name, amen. After registering for the annual Comedians Conference, the first time attendee found his way into the large ballroom where they were serving lunch, got his lunch, and and went over to a table where there were several other what seemed to be long-time attendees eating. He started to sit down when all of a sudden someone in the crowd across the, the room stood up and yelled, number seven. The entire room erupted with laughter. As he sat down, someone else stood up and yelled, number 34. Again, there was uproarious laughter across the room. Not understanding all of this, he turned to the guy next to him and he said, what's going on? Well, the the veteran comedian said, most of us have been here for a long time. We've all heard the same old jokes over and over, so what we've done is assigned each of them numbers. And so now we just call out the numbers and it reminds us of the jokes and we remember the punchlines and we laugh. What a great idea, said the new guy. I'd like to try that. So the veteran said, number 22, always gets a great laugh. Why don't you try that one? So the new guy stands up and he says, number 22, The room is deadly silent. Everyone just turns and stares at him. 
He sits down somewhat dejectedly and he says, I don't understand. Well, says his new acquaintance, some people just can't tell a joke. <laughs> That's sort of what I think of when I read this story in the Gospel of Matthew. For, for you probably know, but in case you don't, this story, this same story is also in Mark's Gospel and it's also in Luke's Gospel. And in those versions, these four faithful friends precariously haul this paralyzed guy up onto the roof of a house. Jesus is teaching inside. And they, because they can't get inside because of the size of the crowd, they began to dig through the roof, the thatched roof of this house causing debris to fall all over the people inside undoubtedly and probably causing the homeowner to start digging through his papers trying to find his homeowner's insurance. And then to the amazement of all in the room who undoubtedly have forgotten what Jesus is saying and are looking up at the spectacle, they began to lower the man on his cot down precariously inch by inch in front of Jesus. All this as the folks are sitting there enjoying their wine and cheese and experiencing their first week of community Bible lesson, no doubt. Now that's how you set up the prelude for an exciting miracle story. But Matthew's got none of that. He skips all the dramatic and exciting lead up and simply has Jesus show up in town, see some people carrying this paralyzed guy and says to the man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Just like that. No roof crashing, no excitement, no dramatic prelude, just take heart, your sins are forgiven. In fact, if we didn't know better, we might think that Matthew didn't know the whole story or, or simply he can't tell a story very well. But maybe Matthew wants us to clearly focus on something else. Maybe on exactly what Harvey Cox found in that old revival hymn, forgiveness, acceptance, restoration. For the third verse of, of that old hymn goes like this, just as I am thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promises I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Or said another way, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. But there's another group there in that crowd. It's the scribes and they aren't buying it. For they know the law and they know that to be forgiven takes work, takes effort. In fact, who does he think he is, this Jesus? He can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Everybody knows that. He's playing God and, and that's the worst of all sins, the dreaded blasphemy, which is pretending to be God. And besides, the scribes are the ones who are charged with declaring in the name of God, 
who is and who's not eligible for forgiveness. The scribes are the one whose task it is to urge people to try harder, to do more to impress God. To try harder, to do more, to win God's favor, to earn God's forgiveness, to give more alms, to give more sacrifices, to do all kinds of things in order to win God's favor. And then maybe then they might achieve God's forgiveness, but only if the the scribes declare it so. They're the ones who hold that authority. And we sort of get that understanding, don't we? That's how the world works, isn't it? Nothing in life that's worth having is free. Nothing comes easy. You work for what you get, even forgiveness. And on top of that, this type of sin, forgiveness, acceptance, thinking, whatever seems to be in place here is sort of hard for us to fully get our mind around. We tend to have a view of sin that's, that's fairly narrow. We tend to see sin as, as a word that describes the, the naughty deeds that, that people do or the good, important things that people don't do. But in the ancient world, sin was, was more complete than that. It was far more transcendent than that. It was understood, and maybe rightly so, so as all power that was against God's will. Everything that infected society, all that polluted nature, that enslaved the human heart, that worked to destroy all of life. So to say that someone sinned meant that that one had been captured and captivated by the larger forces that oppose God. And therefore, human beings couldn't stop sinning merely by deciding to, merely by willing themselves to stop. For example, since it's God's will that all nature exists in harmony that the winds blow cool and gentle, that the fruits ripen to fatness on the vine and in the right time, and, and that plants flower perfectly in all their beauty. Then a sudden and violent storm or a disruption of the peace of the natural world by a tornado or too much rain or flood or by an unseasonable cold snap or something like that was more than a low pressure system running into a warm front, more than an unexpected, unpredictable climate variance. It was an expression of sin. It was a loose and random power in rebellion against the will of God. And in the same way before illness or disease, or in this case, paralysis, is something that afflicts a person, it was a force that opposed God's will. That happens in all of creation and is out to destroy God's intended good purpose. So in the deepest sense, we're all in one way or another struck down. We're all in one way or another afflicted by sin that's not of our own doing. And as such, we all need something more, something more than an antibiotic something more than an inner desire to change. What we need is a deliverer. 
And that brings us back to our story. So Jesus sees a paralyzed man being carried by his faithful friends and he gives that man what he needs most. He says, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. In other words, good news. All that opposes the will of God, all that would keep you from being the person you were intended to be, all the forces that were or are at war with you or against God's will are hereby removed, released, and you are free to be who you were created to be, just as you are. And to prove to you and everyone around that that's true, get up and go home. And ultimately, like for Harvey Cox and for so many others, it's the truth from God we all yearn to hear. It's the deliverer we all yearn for in faith. Jewish rabbi Harold Kushner the author of the best-selling When Bad Things Happen to Good People, tells of looking out at a packed synagogue on Yom Kippur, which for the Jewish people is the Holy Day of Atonement. It's the day the Jewish people fast and pray fervently that God will at long last forgive them. And he writes these words, men and women, who attend no other service of the year, attend this one. People who usually arrive halfway through one of our other services make sure to arrive early tonight. They crowd into this one service because they know their shortcomings and they know they fall short of God's intention for their lives and they yearn for and need a word of forgiveness and acceptance. But I say... I say it just might be that Matthew's focus and intention in this passage is to cut through all the drama, to cut through all the distractions in this story, to set aside all that might deflect or distract our attention from what is most important and give us that very word from the mouth of the Messiah himself to tell us that Jesus has already looked our alienation, looked at all that separates us from God, looked at our brokenness and our paralysis directly in the face and with the full authority of God said, you in faith can come just as you are, for you are forgiven and accepted. As we begin this Lenten journey together in our worship, in our prayer, in our community groups, no matter how we are broken, no matter how we are paralyzed, no matter how we are beaten down in life, we can together echo the words, the authoritative words of Jesus. Take heart, people of God. Your sins are forgiven.
Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Faithful and loving God, in the midst of all that we are and all that we see and all that is around us, in our broken lives and in our broken world, Jesus comes with a word that is true. Take heart, people of God. In faith, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much for listening to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. If you'd like more info about Roswell Presbyterian Church, check out our website at roswellpres.org.